sqpn.com presents The Secrets of Angels and Demons. This is the first sign. What sort of sign? Earth, air, fire, water. And the fifth sign. Hey! This is the first marker. The path is alive. This is the truth. Angels and Demons. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Secrets of Angels and Demons. I'm Father Roderick and I am here in Rome. The sound of the water that you hear is coming from a fountain in the middle of this very cozy little square in the middle of Rome. Took a brisk walk from the Vatican all the way to this square and beyond this fountain is the imposing building of the Pantheon the first location that is examined by Robert Langdon in the novel and in the movie Angels and Demons as a possible location of, uh, of the murder of one of those four abducted cardinals. Now before we uh, hop into the Pantheon, um, let me describe the fountain here in the middle because it's really beautiful. It is a sunny day so the water is, uh, is looking very refreshing and right on top of this big fountain is a small obelisk. Not unlike the bigger obelisk in the center of St. Peter's Square. It's just one of those souvenirs from Egypt that has been erected here in front of the Pantheon. The fountain itself is, uh, is very beautiful, beautifully done with all sorts of water figures and monsters and um, these demi-gods that spit water and uh, there's also um, the coat of arms of one of the popes. The popes have done a lot to restore these fountains or sometimes also have them create. Uh, and that was all part of the, this incredible effort um, to rebuild Rome and to give it more glory. At one point in history, um, Rome was almost deserted. It had, had shrunk, uh, the economy was down the drain, and it was... Uh, thanks to the, the popes, basically, and their families, sometimes they, these pope, popes came from very wealthy families, that, uh, that Rome was rebuilt and, and a lot of these fountains and squares were made in order to, um, to give the city a little bit of its former glory back. Now, from the fountain I walk in the direction of this incredible building, the Pantheon, um, which is, of course, uh, very ancient. It goes uh, back to the old Roman days. Uh, it was created for to honor uh, several gods and uh, semi-gods and it was only later on turned into a church. It's extremely busy here. You've got hundreds if not thousands of tourists walking around here, school classes, um, Japanese tourists with multicolored hats, and here at the entrance of um, the basilica, because again, this is a basilica, not a cathedral, uh, you can see the imposing circular ceiling, which is a marvel of architecture. Uh, within its, in, in the middle, this big open hole uh, through which uh, a beam of sunlight streams into this otherwise pretty dark circular room. And it's currently hitting the uh, left wall of the Pantheon. The floor itself is, uh, 
is decorated with uh, uh, with multicolored marble in big geometrical shapes. And as I said, this was first uh, um, a, a pagan a building uh, used by the Romans, and later on was turned into a, a chapel, into a church with um, with a lot of side chapels. Um, and let me see uh, if I can find some information. For instance, this one, uh, this is the first chapel on the left side when you enter the church is the Chapel of St. Joseph of the Holy Land. Um, it is made in 1550. It uh, has a, a nice statue of St. Joseph with uh, the child Jesus. Not a baby, as you see in, in a lot of depictions, but uh, this time it's a, it's a young boy. I'd say 11, 12 years old. Now let's move on. Um, most of the decoration on the interior is from a much later date. It has been added to the building, which is the case in, in a lot of monuments in, uh, in Rome. Very often uh, you see different layers of influences and architectural styles mixed in in one same building this is the tomb of king king humbert the first the second king of italy from 1844 till 1900 and margarita savoia queen of italy also same uh, same time frame and there is a guard in a navy blue mantle with a big uh, coat of arms embroidered on his mantle uh, keeping guard here next to this this monument. It's a kind of a purple marble pillar, half pillar with um, something that look like, looks like a um, statue of, of a cushion and on top of that is a crown and a scepter, referring of course to the royal status of uh, the people buried there. Here in front of uh, of the, it's kind of difficult to, to speak about the front or the, the back side because this is one circular uh, building, but uh, you will find some, uh, some seats, some pews, um, and lots of tourists are sitting there. And uh, there is actually a piano, uh, a forte piano, and it's, it's being uh, adjusted. There's a, also a small organ, and of course in the middle there is an altar, but it's also used for concerts. This is the uh, Cappella del Crucifisso, the Chapel of the Crucifix. It has a wooden crucifix from the 16th century. But of course, um, that is not what we're looking for. If you've seen the story of angels and demons, you know that uh, the first clue that um, Langdon thinks he found in the non-existent writings of uh, Galileo, this secret book that he would have written, um, this would be the location of the tomb of Raphael. At least that is what he is supposed to find. This is the chapel of uh, the Madonna of Clemency. And what do we have here? This is another site chapel. This is the tomb of uh, Victor Emmanuel II, the first king of Italy. So that's the first half of the 19th century. It's all in black marble. Looks very uh, official, militaristic. And uh, 
We'll move on a little bit to this chapel. What is this? This is the Chapel of the Annunciation, um, early 16th century. It shows uh, some pictures, some paintings from different uh, times. The incredulity of St. Thomas, early 17th century, and St. Lawrence and St. Agnes, early 17th century. And there is, a, I think, an older fresco above this altar of uh, the Annunciation, the angel telling Mary that she would be the mother of Christ. Here is some more information. If I'm correct, a pantheon. Let me read this. Oh, this is just a set of rules. It is forbidden to bring dogs or other animals into the building. It's forbidden to write on the walls or on the marbles or damage them in other ways. To make a noise that could be annoying to other visitors. Eat food. <laughs> Behave in any way that is not in keeping with the decorum of the monument. Carry out any form of commercial activity. Offend the holy nature of the monument in any way. Speak in a loud voice. Make a noise or cause any kind of disturbance during religious services. Well, I think that, you know, all that is quite obvious. However, not many tourists respect some of these rules, especially when it comes to speaking loud. <laughs> and people are just walking around, you know, in t-shirts and shorts and Bermudas. Now here's more, um, more information. Let me read this. Um, Thanks to its uh, transformation from a pagan temple to a Christian church, the Basilica of St. Maria and Martyrs, with a donation by the Byzantine Emperor Foca to Pope Boniface, Boniface IV around uh, 608 AD, the Pantheon is definitely the best preserved of all ancient buildings we treasure today. The monumental bronze portal of the entrance is one of the main constitutive elements, giving their contribution to the fascination always accompanying the building, denominated La Rotonda because of its shape. Uh, it's preceded by a small avant-corps, um, originally jutting out of the thickness of the rotonda, the portal has to be considered an original example of Roman age in spite of the many additions and interventions for restoration, specifically focusing on the wooden covers of the inside, yada, 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 yada. <laughs> so this is all about, uh, let's see, this, uh, the, the bronze door in front of the monument and its history. I think that's a little bit too detailed for uh, the purpose of this show. Now, it is quite an enigma where this tomb of Raphael is supposed to be. Um, I can't see it, actually. See? Che è successo? Io vi faccio un programma sulle... Sto registrando, sì, sì, sì. E allora... C'è una festa? Ieri. Ieri? Tutti i ah, davvero? Qual festa? È l'anniversario della donazione al Papa, del Pantheon. Oh, okay. So she, she tells me that uh, yesterday was a, a big feast here in the Pantheon. I'm translating. Sto, sto traducendo. Uh, so there has been this big feast. And it's the commemoration of the moment that the, that, um, the, the Emperor gave this, uh, this building, the Pantheon, to the Pope. Sì. Da Bonifacio Quarto. Uh, to Pope uh, Boniface, uh, Boniface the, the Fourth. Si, sicuro. 
e allora adesso c'è questo film di angeli e demoni nel, ah, nel cinema davvero? ci sono ah, e, e c'è anche, anche una parte che, che, si, che, che si fa qui nel Pantheon ah, sì, sì, eh, e parlano del, del, uh, del, della tomba di, di Raffaello ah, se l'ha visto lei No, dove? La Vergine, la Vergine. Vedo la Vergine, ah, ah, quella è Sant'Agnese. Ah, la sì, Vergine. sì. Quella è la Madonna del Sasso sì. di Lorenzo Lotti. Ok. Detto il Lorenzetto, Lorenzetto. famosissimo. Sì. 1522. Ok. E sta lì anche il tomba di, di Raffaello? Sotto. Sotto. Sotto, ah. Raffaello, sapendo di morire perché stava male, sì. ordinò al Papa di essere sepolto lì dentro perché prima stava lì, ah, la Cappella dei Virtuosi. Sì, sì. La Cappella dei Virtuosi. Sì. Dopo 200 anni fa è stato messo là. E il Papa che c'è scritto sulla tomba ce l'ha messo. Ah, sulla tomba c'è okay. in, in latino un Papa. E, sapendo di morire si ordinò dal Papa, una, la Madonna l'ha messo sulla sua tomba. Ah, e il Papa ottimo. che ordinò. Dopo due anni sì. questa Madonna è stata pronta sì. e l'hanno messo. Ottimo. Quello è un orologio, vedi? Sì, sì, Vede sì. Vede la finestra. Così. Sì, è bellissimo, è bellissimo. Poi c'è un'altra cosa che non so se a lei fa piacere, ma io dico di sì. sì. Vedo questa tomba del bambino, vedi? Ah, sono bambini? È una tomba di tre bambini dieci anni prima di Cristo. Ah, e non sapevo. E quindi Augusto. Ok, grazie. Eh, gra due sono gemelli e uno in anno. Ok. Vedi, in latino, in latino. Vedi? Sì, sì, sì. Ma è un latino che si legge bene. Sì, Quindi, sì. Vedo. Allora devo tradurre adesso, eh, ma sì, grazie sì, molto. <laughs> so she gave me a, a whole explanation. So I, I think we've, we found our guidance here. So she showed me on the left here is this tomb of uh, three children of, um, I think, one of the emperors. Um, and, and you see here in, um, in, in marble there, uh, you know, the um, three circular, circular depictions of their of their heads so three children are buried there and she pointed me towards the other side of the pantheon and that is where we will find the tomb of Raphael she hadn't seen a movie yet I don't know if she was aware that this was going to be quite a big thing and many tourists might ask the same questions that I'm asking but I, I'm sure that she will soon discover so let's go over to the other side of the pantheon again and she pointed me she said there are two big statues on the left you see Saint Agnes and on the right is a statue of the Madonna, of the, of the Holy Virgin Mary and the child Jesus. And she said, underneath that statue is the tomb of Raphael. But originally Raphael was, was buried uh, more to the left, so towards the entrance of the Pantheon. But it has been changed later on uh, by decree of a pope. I forgot which pope it was. And... Um, uh, and the Pope also ordered that this statue of the Madonna of, uh, of the Virgin, Virgin Mary uh, sh should be placed on top of this tomb. And there we go, there we have it. This is the sarcophagus. How did I miss that the first time that I walked around here? This is the tomb of Raphael, painter and architect, 1483-1520. And the Madonna of the Stone um, was created by Lorenzo Lotti also called Lorenz, Lorenzetto. And he lived from 1520, or he made the statue in 1523 or 24. Now let me see if I can find some more information here. Raphael's grave, here we go. After Raphael's death in 1520, the artist's body was immediately transferred here. The Madonna del Sasso 
by Raphael's pupil Lorenzetto is dated uh, around 1523, I just mentioned that. In 1833, during the papacy of Gregorio uh, 14, or 16th, so Pope Gregory the 16th, the grave was opened to verify the body's existence. The body was found and the Pope gave as a gift the ancient marble sarcophagus where uh, you can read Bembo's inscription Ile hic est Raphael timuit quo sospite vinci rerum magna parens et moriente mori. Translated for those of you that might not be fluent in Latin, here lies Raphael by whom nature feared to be outdone while he lived and when he died feared that she herself would die. The bronze portrait of the painter on the left of the edicule is by Giuseppe Fabris from 1833. The inscription on the right commemorates the painter Anibal Caracchi. The opening of Raphael's grave was remembered in 1836 by a painting by Francesco Diofebbi. Okay, I, and then they, they printed a picture, of, a color picture of the uh, opening of that tomb of Raffaello. And so, underneath the statue, you see, um, it's actually, there's a glass plate, and uh, on the inside, uh, illuminated by two spotlights, you see this uh, marble sarcophagus, and within that sarcophagus, you will find the remains of Raphael. However, Robert Langdon soon realizes that this is not where he should be, that actually, um, the manuscript that he was reading, the uh, clue did not pertain to the grave of Raphael itself, but referred to a tomb or a grave designed by Raphael. And he has to do some quick thinking, and then he realizes that he is in the wrong church. He's got to go to the Piazza del Popoli in order to go uh, to a church where there is actually a grave that has been designed by Raphael. And, um, and so he hurries out of the door and, um, and rushes through traffic to, uh, to go to uh, the Piazza dei Popoli. And that is also where we go. We have to, that's, that's a brisk walk from here. It's about, well, I think if I walk very quickly, it'll take me about, uh, I think, 10, 15 minutes maximum. And that is where he actually should have been and uh, that is also a very interesting place to see. So hopefully you enjoyed this uh, short visit of the Pantheon. And before I wrap it up, I want to tell you something about the Illuminati because they seem to be behind this intricate plot to kill those four cardinals as um, an act of vengeance um, in retribution for the murder of uh, four scientists that belonged to the Illuminati by the church in, uh, in ancient times. And of course, um, after those four cardinals are murdered, the ultimate revenge would be the destruction of the Catholic Church itself, or at least um, the destruction of its main symbols, the Basilica of St. Peter's and the papacy, because all the cardinals are in the Vatican, and so if you blow them up, there's not going to be an expo, at least according to the Illuminati. One of the things that I found most engrossing when I was reading Angels and Demons was the Illuminati. The Illuminati was formed in the 1600s. They were artists and scientists like Galileo and Bernini 
whose progressive ideas threatened the Vatican. The Illuminati, they were pushing knowledge, um, and they had a pretty, pretty august group of people. The early Illuminati were persecuted by the church. They were hunted down, even executed, and driven underground. There wasn't a powerful organization on Earth they didn't penetrate, including the Vatican, by hiding in plain sight. The Illuminati, uh, this sect of scientists who've been suppressed by the church have come back. Four cardinals were kidnapped from inside the Vatican. The Illuminati themselves have returned to Rome. The mystery of the Illuminati goes on and on and on, and there's so much written about it. Some believe, some don't. This is what Dan Brown exploits so wonderfully in Angels and Demons. What do we really know about the Illuminati? Some believe they're with us in secret today. reliable is that whole information about the Illuminati? Is, is this for real? Is this a real secret organization? Um, are they as old as Dan Brown um, tells us? Um, do they still have members in, uh, in current days? Well, as you will understand, again, this is a mix of uh, both a few historical facts and a lot of fiction by Dan Brown and not only by Dan Brown but there are actually a lot of theories about these Illuminati uh, some of which are uh, uh, very much entangled with other conspiracy theories of a new world order etc etc so while we uh, start our walk towards this uh, other church on the Piazza dei Popoli let me uh, let me tell you a little bit about the Illuminati. Now, um, the, the uh, assertion that both Bernini and Galileo, Galileo had been friends and were both members of this uh, secret anti-Catholic organization of the Illuminati is, uh, is, is fiction. There are no historical um, indications that... Uh, that Bernini and Galileo uh, had known each other, were befriended, let alone that they were members of the Illuminati. Actually, scientific research tells us that the Illuminati themselves um, only existed, or started to exist, uh, in uh, 1776, long after um, Bernini's and Galileo's death. According to uh, historians, these... Uh, these Illuminati were one of the many secret societies, secret movements that were erected around that same era. Uh, and this one was uh, organized in 1776 in Bavaria by Adam Weishaupt. He was a professor in canon law. And so he started to organize this organization that he called the Illuminati. And he modeled it after the Masonic lodges. Is very akin to the uh, to the uh, uh, Freemasonry movements and groups. And um, as I'm walking here, oops, through this these streets, you sometimes get some static interference by cell phones or I don't know what kind of transmitters that are placed here. Of course, uh, this is a, a country where people love their cell phones, so every once in a while you will get some. Uh, some uh, white noise on the recording because of people having very strong uh, uh, strong antennas or whatever 
in their, uh, in their cell phones. So Illuminati didn't exist uh, at the time of Bernini and Galileo, um, were erected in 1776. Um, and as I said, there were a lot of secret societies at the time. This was, a, again, a, time, a period in, in time that uh, there was a lot of opposition against organized religion, uh, against authority, be it um, religious authority or uh, political authority. And so a lot of these secret societies were organized um, to offer a platform for free thinkers, for people that didn't agree, that wanted to change, that wanted to somehow overturn um, these powers, um, so to kind of put an end to the power of the Catholic Church, uh, put an end to monarchies, and uh, in order not to, um, to be influenced by these same powers, they, uh, they created secret societies, and you needed to follow certain rules, you had to know certain people, and there were certain rituals in order to be initiated and to become part of such a movement. And uh, the Illuminati were not at all this huge, uh, century-old organization that uh, Dan Brown um, makes it. Uh, they were actually pretty small. Uh, there are no indications that there were more than a couple of thousand uh, members, if, if, if that, you know. It's, it's, and, and again, there were lots of organizations like this. Um, and very soon, um, since they had such a strong political agenda, and since they were so um, clearly opposed towards the monarchy, uh, towards any form of authoritative power, uh, governments took steps to put an end to those secret organizations. It's getting very busy here. I'm actually uh, now at the uh, one of the uh, main roads through the heart of uh, of Rome, and I'm walking towards another um, obelisk. All the way at the end of this road, I have to go through the Via del Corso, and uh, that will bring me to this square. That is also the destination of Robert Langdon after he has visited the Pantheon. And so I'll just uh, move on and on. And this is a very busy street, lots of traffic, lots of tourists. And uh, it's also the ultimate shopping area. So you've got lots of fashion stores and jewelry and technology, music, video, whatever, books. So, um, since, uh, because of their political agenda, uh, the government uh, quickly started to intervene and uh, started to dismantle these organizations between 1780 and 1787. After 1787, there was no trace left of these organizations. And that was the end of the Illuminati. And so, you know, in total, this organization might have existed at maximum 12 years, but not at all centuries, and, uh, and certainly not at the time of Bernini. And so all of that is um, not based on historical fact, but um, it is actually Dan Brown draws upon the myth of the Illuminati. And um, I, I gotta wait here because um, this is, uh, the, there is a, a political building here and um, these police officers are holding us back because there is a, 
there are some important politicians arriving in their fast cars. And as always, here in Italy, you'd better obey the police because they're very strict. <laughs> so the Illuminati, even after the movement was dissolved, um, very soon became part of mythology and there was a whole new story that was constructed around the secret movement and uh, that myth of the Illuminati was a, mainly a result of the French Revolution, a product of the French Revolution. Uh, according to lore, the Illuminati, as a secret society, would have manipulated the people in France to destroy the monarchy, which was kind of in line with their political thoughts and agenda. And a lot of these more mythological conspiracy theory type of, um, of stories about the Illuminati uh, go two ways, actually. Either they try to connect the Illuminati from Bavaria to other secret societies in history, um, and uh, even though there usually is no historical proof for that, it's quite easy to find similar movements in other times and then say, well, this is all the same movement. The, you know, those Illuminati were around uh, way before their official organization in, in Bavaria towards the end of the 18th century. Um, or other theories say, well, the Illuminati are still there. Um, again, more police officers and more fast cars speeding by. And so uh, the other branch of theories say, well, no, the Illuminati were not su successfully repressed. They still exist and they still have members. And um, a, a number of these conspiracy theories link the Illuminati movement to this new world order. Um, and again, this is, this is all part of this, this very intricate web of conspiracy theories that is very popular right now and has uh, also uh, easy ways to, uh, uh, to communicate itself through the internet and, and blogs, etc., etc., um, and, and even podcasts, you know. But historians say, well, this is <laughs> interesting theory, but uh, no, there are no factual, there's no factual foundation for those theories. And so one of these um, theories about the Illuminati try to link the uh, Bavarian organization to a movement in Spain in, I think, in the 16th century. That, that's kind of the only movement that we know of historically that could be a little bit in the same time frame as Galileo and, uh, and Bernini. But the problem was that this Spanish movement, um, of course, it wasn't really called the Illuminati, uh, but had something of, you know, the enlightened ones. Um, this was a very spiritual movement and the emphasis of the movement was not at all anti-Catholic or anti-faith or anti-church. Quite on the contrary, it was a, almost a kind of a mystical, we would nowadays perhaps say a little bit new agey, but it was kind of a mystical movement um, where the emphasis was on the elimination from within, you know, reaching spiritual ecstasy and uh, trying to rid yourself of the material world and, and finding enlightenment like that. So, you know, even though there has been a Spanish movement 
it, it's not at all this very pro-science, anti-monarchy, anti-church power kind of movement that we see in Bavaria and that we see in the books of Dan Brown. So again, also on that point, there is little to no evidence that uh, the Spanish movement has anything to do with the Illuminati. But of course, uh, since these, um, these conspiracy theories are so popular nowadays, um, it's, it's kind of easy to use that as a, as a plot point. It always intrigues us to, uh, to hear about these... There's a big horse. <laughs> All of a sudden he, he got startled by, I don't know, by me or by some tourists. So he moved his head, he shook his head violently in my direction. I was like, oh my gosh, he's going to eat my microphone. <laughs> but we kind of like those stories about secret organizations and you never know how far their tentacles will reach. But, you know, there has been even a, at one point uh, um, an Illuminati scare in the United States. Um, and it was based on that same assumption that, you know, the movement was still around and... Uh, they, would, they might want to try to do exactly the same as what was done in, in France during the revolution. But all that is, is, again, it's part of the myth of the Illuminati instead of on the history of the Illuminati. So I hope that uh, has um, illuminated you a little bit, has cleared your mind about this organization and why um, the way in which uh, Dan Brown um, portrays them is, uh, uh, sprouts from his very rich imagination instead of historical fact. Um, and now we're almost there, actually. We're making good progress. I'm now uh, at the Corso, and um, here is a little square with on my left a nice basilica, Basilica di San Ambrogio e Carlo. And uh, further down the road is one of the theaters, one of the movie theaters that I used to visit when I was still vis uh, studying here in Rome. And of course, lots of street artists are selling their, their works here to the many tourists. All that is completely illegal, but the police kind of chooses not to, not to act and not to remove them. So you see these uh, illegal vendors almost everywhere. They are a whole secret organization in itself. Now there is this other strange movement that is alluded to in the movie and I think it is a little bit more expanded upon in the book which is the Order of the Assassins and the bad guy of the movie is one of these assassins. Um, now again I'm not sure how Dan Brown mixes these two organizations, but I think he, he kind of implicates that the Order of the Assassins is part of the Illuminati or has like a common goal. So this bad guy um, is, is one of these assassins. Now, uh, is this correct? Is this pure fiction or is there some historical truth underneath this, uh, this plot point? Well, actually there is. Um, the assassins actually did exist. It was part of Shia Islam in northern Iran. However, we're talking 11th century here. And they had some strange habits. Uh, one of the things that I read about them is that uh, they would choose a leader and then after a while, after a couple of years, they would kill him, always with a dagger in plain sight. And then they would elect a new leader. And so this 
that's probably why they call them the assassins or anything. Um, some historians believe that actually the, these killings were part of, you know, whenever there was a leader that abused his power or started to um, move the, the organization in the, in the wrong direction, then they would be just executed and killed. I don't know. Anyway, what, what is very clear is that we are talking about a completely different time frame here and a completely different culture. And so there is absolutely no historical basis to, for uh, the assumption that Dan Brown makes that somehow the order of the assassins is related uh, or part of the Illuminati. But it makes for a, an interesting, very creepy bad guy and a very ruthless cold killer. The way he executes people in those churches, it is, uh, it's quite chilling. So it makes for a good bad guy, but unfortunately, um, or perhaps fortunately, there is no historical basis for this bad guy. Right, well, I think that wraps it up for this episode. Uh, we've been walking from the Pantheon in the direction of our second location, and that is where we will start the next episode. Lots of noise here on my left. They're cleaning a church. There's some blue graffiti on the church wall, and uh, it's immediately removed in order not to uh, encourage other graffiti artists to follow the example. In front of me, I can see the big obelisk. This one is much bigger than the one on the square in front of the Pantheon. And uh, that is also where Robert Langdon arrives in his ongoing quest to try to prevent the murder of these four cardinals. So join me next time to hear more about uh, this new location that we're going to explore and about some of the historical facts um, that might have served as inspiration for Dan Brown and also the more fictional elements in his story about angels and demons. From Rome, I'm Father Roderick. I would like to encourage you to write a review, leave a review of this show on iTunes. Look for The Secrets of Angels and Demons by Father Roderick or uh, visit uh, the website of the StarQuest Production Network, www.sqpn.com for more shows and more episodes and more information. Thank you for listening. See you next time. And as always, God bless. Do you believe in God, sir? SQPN, leading the way in Catholic new media.